Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to episode 24 of Kicking the Kairiarchy. Woo! The final episode of series two. My name is Sid. I am your co-host and, I guess, illustrator. And with me is the wonderful Elena, who is also co-host and producer of Kicking the Kariaki. Woohoo! So, I thought that it would be good to give a little definition of what kariaki means, as if you're a first-time listener, we don't ever really define it that often. And it's a bit of a buzzword, jargony term, so you wouldn't come across this in your day-to-day life. So, what the heck does kariaki mean? So, let's break it down a little bit. Smashing yes. the patriarchy right is a phrase commonly used and heard of within like feminist circles. Yeah. Feminist terms, right? So that is all well and good, but patriarchy just assumes that gender is the issue. Yes. That if we were to sort out gender in society, that everything would be fine. Yeah. But we know that that's not the case. We know that people can be disadvantaged because of their class, because of their race, because of their mental and physical ability, their gender identity, sexual orientation, all of these different identities. And patriarchy doesn't incorporate all of those, whereas kairiarchy does. Kairiarchy incorporates all those different varying levels of uh, identities and varying levels of privilege and power. Power, exactly. So that is why we don't just smash the patriarchy, we kick kick the the kairiarchy. And so do you, listeners, so do you. So last month was all about voluntourism, which coincides perfectly with your summer holidays. We had three phenomenal guests help us discuss what voluntourism was, who really benefits from this, and how, if you really want to make a difference, how we can go about doing that. So, if you're planning on going volunteering this summer, or at any time, please listen to that episode of Voluntourism and Reflect. We cannot stress to you how important it is to do your research and to make sure that you are actually qualified to do the job. Absolutely. Big thanks to Becky Malone and Amelia Parker for their help in assistant producing that episode into the kick-ass one that it was. This month, we're exploring masculinity. And some of you may be wondering why masculinity is a feminist issue. So let's break it down. Yes, historically, all genders other than cis men have been given the shitty end of the societal stick, right? However, to truly be able to liberate ourselves from the toxic binds of patriarchy, we also have to liberate men. We have to redesign the structure for men also. Men have suffered and are suffering because of toxic masculinity. You've probably heard that one in four people will suffer with mental health at some point in their life. And if we dig a little deeper, you'll find that male suicide is the biggest killer of men aged under 45 in the UK. We are aware that these statistics are a little bit skewed, uh, Elena and I, with our psychologist hats, because we know that whilst men are more likely to kill themselves, we know that women are more likely to self-harm. So, we're exploring masculinity because society values masculine traits and devalues feminine traits. We're exploring masculinity because when a woman doesn't conform to femininity, masculinity is used to punish her. 
We're exploring masculinity because when a man or a boy is emotional, we tell them to man up and to grow some balls. And we're then left with half a population of emotionally stunted people who are unable to interpret their experiences. We're exploring masculinity because black men are told that they're not attractive, because they're told that they are aggressors, and because there's a colonial legacy which is inherited by today's generation and nobody knows how to deal with it. So we've got three flipping awesome guests to come on and help us talk about this. Great. Let's get to it. Hi, I'm Tabs. I am white. I'm cis. I am a lesbian. I'm a butch dyke. And I run a club night called Butch Please at the RVT and at the Glory in London. And yeah, I'm, I'm also a musician and a songwriter. And I'm really just all about um, promoting butch identity and fighting for the rights of women to be different kinds of women. Mm. Can you tell us a bit about Butch Please? Yeah, so Butch Please started a couple of years ago. I guess I started it because I felt like I just didn't really I felt like there were any spaces for me. I didn't really feel at home anywhere. So I really wanted to create a club night where Butch Dykes could come and feel celebrated and feel warmth and feel connected to other Butch Dykes in our community. And also to create a an intergenerational dialogue because older butch women have been really important figures in my life and I think you know a, a lot of young people of course they're all online meeting people that kind of stuff which is really cool um, but I also think it's really important to meet people face to face you know maybe I know a lot of people aren't into drinking culture and I do understand that but you know at a bar you might start chatting to someone that you never would have picked out online but it's actually someone you might have a really intense connection with and quite often that is younger butch dykes with older butch dykes and that's really super exciting for me that really is very very special when I see that happening because I think butch women have a really long and rich past and history and we can't forget that and we really need to stay connected to that. Amazing. So I want to ask you two things. I want to get into the history of this, but also just for our listeners, can you tell us what what is Butch, if anyone doesn't know? Well, look, I think people will interpret Butch lots of different ways in relation to their own identity and their own lives. So I'm going to talk about what Butch is for me. Okay, now Butch is a couple of things. So actually Butch for me is not, anything to do with being masculine. It's actually about being deeply feminine and about being a woman. Now, the, the other thing that it's about for me is about how I am perceived in the world and how I go through the world. You know, it's not easy being a butch woman. It's not easy at all. In um, Hannah Gadsby's uh, brilliant, amazing Nanette, as she calls it, an incorrect woman. And I'm punished every single day for being an incorrect woman, for being a butch woman. And that that means that I have to survive in the world and that makes me strong. And that survival is also for me what it's about to be butch. You know, we have to accept that the whole world and our society is built around masculinity. It is. You know, that is the sun around which we all revolve, all of us, whether we like it or not. And I refuse to accept that. And I refuse to accept that the way I look is about being masculine. It's not. There are lots of different types of women in the world. And I, I, I want to fight for that. I don't see why I should have to associate my identity with masculinity. I want to reject that because we live in a patriarchy and everything is about masculinity. So I, I want to detach from that and say, actually, no, being butch for me has nothing to do with that. You talked about how like butch women have a really rich and wonderful history. And I don't know it. 
yeah. I'm assuming that a lot of our listeners don't know it. So can you maybe kind of educate us a little bit on that? I, I don't I don't know what to say about really about like what is the history but I mean we've always been here I mean I don't know there have always been butch women there have always been dykes um, and I th- what I mean about when I talk about history is I think it's important to ha- to see other people before you who've lived that life and who survived and that's the importance of history absolutely do you have any icons yourself or anybody that you've looked up to yeah I mean of course there's like tons of amazing butch women throughout history who I really, really admire, and I'm sure lots of people know them, but I've never met them. And whilst they're really important, I don't, I don't know them. When people ask me that question, I always like to mention people in our community that I know who've really inspired me. Um, and to be honest, those people aren't necessarily always butch women. For me, they're any, any women who have like challenged people's ideas and perceptions about what women are. So I do have, I like to call my butch mother, who's an older butch woman who has looked after me from when I was really young, when I first came out. You know, has fed me, housed me at various points. I mean, just, and really shown me that it's okay to live this life, that I can be happy, be successful, that I can be loved, I can have fulfilling relationships. And that is just the most important thing that could ever have happened to me. Um, but then there's also, um, there's a woman called Miss Kimberly, who, who's a, a, a trans woman of colour, who is a singer, uh, a, an actor, and she's just the most amazing woman. And she also really, really inspires me to to keep challenging what people think women should be like. Amazing. You referred to dyke a couple of times. Can you tell us a bit about that word? Because even me saying it, I'm not... Tell, Does it upset me- you a bit? No, yeah. no, it doesn't. It feels like it's a word that I don't feel like I, I would use for anybody else or that I would use for myself. But I, yeah. I think it's a bit like queer and the, the, the reclaiming of the word, perhaps. But yeah, definitely. Tell me what dyke means to you, because you defined yourself as a butch dyke right at the start. Yeah. Well, when I was coming out, this is like 10, 15 years ago, I definitely, that was when queer was being reclaimed. And I definitely was like, oh, yeah, I totally identify as queer. I know what's happening here. This is totally a thing. But to be honest, as, as time's gone on, um, and especially when I started Butch Please, I just started to have this sort of feeling around, like, if you ever use the word lesbian or butch or die, it's mm-hmm. often the butt of people's jokes, even within our community. And I started to kind of just niggle away at me a bit because whilst we are a broad community, we're all really different. We don't all have to be the same. You know, we can celebrate each other's differences. I really, really believe this is something which is not talked about enough right now is it's fine we can have gay pride and all of that stuff, you know, but it's okay for us to be different as well. So it's okay for butch women to have a party. It's okay for trans women to have a party. It's okay for people of colour to meet separately. In fact, it's a really important part of nourishing your own identity and of building important connections, you know. What I was going to say was when I first put up Butch Please on Facebook as an event, I said that it was lesbian-centred, dyke-centred. And I got you know, trolled basically quite badly from people within our community saying that because I used the word lesbian, I was reinforcing the binary and I was excluding groups of people, namely trans women. That wasn't my intention, of course. Um, That was why I'd use the word dyke, lesbian, centred, as in this night is a celebration of this identity, but all queer people who are happy to come and celebrate that, please come along. And lots of trans women come to Butch, please. It's a really varied and mixed crowd. And I love that about it. But I think, so I started to use dyke and I started to use lesbian 
when I realised that it started to irritate people. Because I, I really never felt connected to Dyke. Butch Dyke just sounded really scary. That's all the things my mother used to say were wrong with the world. You know, mm. Butch Dyke, oh, they're just disgusting, you know, and it's lesbians, oh, lesbians. You know, even lesbians were going, oh, the lesbians, you know, and it's kind of like, mm. what is it? What? I, so the more I saw it annoy people, be a joke, you know, I was just like, actually, hang on, I have to, I have to be this because this is who I am. And if I let it be a joke, then I'm a joke. I'm not a joke, you know? And that's when I absolutely was like, right, I'm going to say it. And that's what I'm talking about when I say butch for me is about how I am perceived in the world, how people treat me, how awful people are most of the time, and how I survive that. That's what I'm talking about. So I use butch dyke and I use lesbian because I'm like, fuck you. This is who I am. I exist. I'm not a joke. You can't erase me because it doesn't suit your version of the world. And just because I identify that way doesn't mean that you can't identify the way you identify. And I can't love and celebrate you for that too. So please love and celebrate me for how I identify. So, Rant over. Yeah, no. <laughs> and a put mic drop. Yeah. <laughs> so you you talked about how, um, you know, you, you feel you're punished in society for being butch. Can you talk to us about like how or why you're punished and the, the the treatment that you've had in society because of it? I would say definitely in the last three or four years in particular, I have felt homophobia rising. Now, we know, for example, that post-Brexit, because Gallup did a poll, that all hate crime spiked after Brexit. But homophobic hate crime was the only hate crime not to go back down again. Now, this is really serious and people are not talking about it. I've definitely started to experience a lot more homophobia. So I'm talking about people shouting, dyke, you dirty dyke. Uh, I was crossing the road with my dog. A group of lads in a car screeched to a halt and started to reverse towards me at speed to try and hit me in the road. Uh, One of my favourites was a guy walking through the park. I was again walking my dog and he went, oi, dyke, and bent over and farted at me. Yeah, that was a new low. I mean, you know, I can I can kind of joke about it, but it's it's not a joke, I guess. Um, uh, once something that happened to me a few months ago, which was actually really, really deeply affected me, was in my local post office. Uh, a guy, I walked in and he just started looking at me and being just looking at me in that really disgusting way, and I just said, "What are you looking at?" And he went absolutely mental. He tried to hit me. Said he was going to kill me. Um, these people had to hold him back and nobody in the post office said or did anything at all. And I mean no one. In fact, a woman at another counter turned to him and said, oh, don't worry, I know you're all right, to the guy. So, you know, I think that was a really interesting experience for me because it was the first one of the first times I'd really experienced the real threat and, you know, violence. I was really frightened. And it really, really upset me, mainly because I saw that everybody in that post office had decided that I was absolutely at the bottom of the pile and that's why nobody was going to do anything or defend me or say anything. And I should say I go in that post office quite a lot. I'm quite friendly with, with the people in there. And I think, you know, it's getting harder and harder. I would say that travelling and walking around, I think I live with quite a high level of stress and the threat of violence and recently I have developed a stomach ulcer I just have to live with a certain amount of stress every single day that lots of other people don't have to live with you know I I think lots of women experience whoever they are experience high levels of street harassment and the reason why I'm 
harassed on the street is the same reason why you know a, a, a straight-looking woman might experience harassment on the street. It's this that the, the the fundamental reasons are the same, which is misogyny and patriarchy, and men thinking that they can say and do whatever they like to women on the street. Uh, you know, my girlfriend, who's um, uh, a person of colour, she experiences street harassment in a particularly kind of really gross, over-sexualised way. I just experience it in a really violent, like, threat of violence way. So, you know, it manifests itself in different ways. I kind of... I, I used to not want to talk about it because I think I felt like it was really negative and I didn't want to... I didn't want to bother people, you know? But it's really hard. It's really, really hard. And I think, to, to just going back, because it's in my mind, like um, Hannah Gadsby's Nanette, like just to see someone like her go on stage and talk about what that violence has done to her life is, is really powerful. You know, it's very difficult, but it's very, very powerful. And that actually is also one of the main reasons why I started Butch Please, because I wanted to be in a space where I didn't have to face that kind of violence all of the time <laughs> having a little cry here but <laughs> but it's good you know it's good you have to feel this because I think for me that's the kind of stomach ulcer thing that's happened to me is I haven't let a lot of this flow through me in the way that it should so I'm really trying to do that and that has to be around sharing my story and letting other people know that we can survive and but yeah so Butch Please that's definitely why I started it because I felt like I, I couldn't always I had to be around people where I didn't feel that way and when you're in that space and you don't feel that way, you realise how bad you feel a lot of the rest of the time. And if I want anything out of Butch, please, I want people to come and I want them to know that they're not alone. I always say at the end of the night, you know, thanks so much, everyone, for coming because it makes me feel a little bit less alone in the world. And if I can walk the streets knowing that those people are there with me who experience it too and they survive and they go on, then that just makes everything a lot easier. You know, I never really realised how much being a butch dyke was so much of a battle and a fight. Um. But I'm not, you know, and I, but I'm not an aggressive person, and I'm mm. not, I'm not. That's, I guess, why again I reject this kind of, I reject masculinity being part of my butch identity because, for me, it's I'm actually being butch is a lot about being really caring, and be feeling really deeply connected to people. Um, you know, in, in, in uh, indigenous cultures, for example, in North America, you know, there's two-spirit people who are the most wise people in the community. They are people who are revered. They're often musicians as well, interestingly. And they they hold these different aspects of, of gender identity and they they hold them at the same time and that's seen as deeply insightful and deeply spiritual. You know, so it's, I, I think... We, it's really good. I find that kind of stuff really, really helpful because it helps me understand that this is just such a, such a white Western, you know, approach to gender identity, and that obviously goes beyond butchers, you know, all different mm. types of identity. But it's not, it's it's not the only way. Mm. <laughs> but is it is it a choice to show oneself as as butch? Would it be easier to just, I don't know. Have, I've have long hair and I don't know. No, I don't really like this question at all. Um, I feel bad asking it. Uh, no, no, no. You know, no is the answer for sure. Because have, ha- having my, if I had long hair, you know, yeah. that's just not who I am. And it's 
you know, there is there is an aesthetic to being butch, broadly speaking, I guess, because I wouldn't like to say too generally, because obviously it means different things to different people. But no, I can't, I can't change the way I look, no. No. It's and, just not an option. And that's a really good point, and I don't even know why, why I wanted to ask it, because I wouldn't have asked that of anything else, mm-hmm. of the way that anybody else presents. Yeah, because, you know, the problem is, is that women, the way women look is up for discussion mm. in general. And it's not, it's, do you know what? It's not, fuck you, it's not up for discussion. That's what I'm saying about being butchers, that there are all different sorts of women. Okay, so, you know, it, I, might be a, I might be a butch woman, you might be a trans woman, but the way we choose to express ourselves is offensive to everybody because we've chosen to do it differently. It is not okay for how I look to be policed by society. And it is for all women. You're too fat, you're too thin, your hair's too long, it's too short. You know, you, I will say that like the other word which people always say to me before they say dyke is fat. That's what people always say. The two kind of go hand in hand, like absolutely fat push dyke, always. Or as a guy said to me as, I, as he hit me on the zebra crossing on his bicycle on purpose on Shaftesbury Avenue last week, you fat fucking cunt, get out of my fucking way, you fat fucking cunt. So literally, you know, that's what I'm saying about these points of connection. You know, the reason why my identity is policed is the same as it is for, for lots of women. M- most men don't experience this level of scrutiny about how we live in the outside world. We, you know, are women not supposed to walk the streets? You know, am I supposed to feel this uncomfortable all of the time and I'm out in the world? You know, people, people in this country are always talking about, oh, in other countries, you know, be, women aren't allowed out of the house. But you know what? Sometimes I don't want to leave the house because of the way I'm treated on the street. You know, so maybe <laughs> people need to look around them. I would love all women to come together and, and see all these points of connection and see that, you know, I, you know, like I said in the post office, when that woman who I'd never seen before, who didn't know me, decided to take the side of the guy who was threatening to kill me. She didn't know him either. It was clear to me she'd never met him. She just decided. And it's like, well, OK. You know, and I, I, I wish more women would see those points of connection. So how can we be better allies? <laughs> yeah, yeah. What can we actually do? Like I said, I think I think we should... I think we should start, to, you know, we live in a post-intersectional world. Come on, you know, like we, we understand how complex all our identities are and how they're all connected and, and not connected. And I think we, we just need to understand the bigger picture a little bit around that. And I would really like it if everybody in the queer community was a lot more accepting of our differences and was still as excited by that and understand and use those differences to actually fight you know, the bigger problem here, which is the government in this country, which is patriarchy worldwide, you know, um, uh, racism within our community, like much, much bigger issues. And, um, you know, that's why, for example, Black Pride is so important. That's tomorrow. Very, very excited about Black Pride because, you know, Lady Phil has like totally created something which is completely different. And it's so hard. I'm telling you what, right? Running Butch Please is really hard. It's really hard to carve out these spaces for people that nobody cares about. It's not easy. And to have done that and for it to have been as successful and long-running as it has, maximum respect. I have to say that I'm not a big drinker, but I have been to Butch Please. And um, I freaking love it because you do things like... um, People go and not drink. Can I just Yeah, 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 totally. (laughs) I just, I'm conscious of like some queers are like, you know, it's not always good to be in spaces that serve alcohol, which I totally do get. Uh, But we do have an interactive element at the beginning, so we've done all sorts of things, so... 
Uh, we've had safe sex talk. I remember that. That was amazing. That's actually on YouTube if anyone wants to see it. That was really good. And actually, you know, I was a little bit shocked, to be fair, how few younger women had really ever heard anyone speak about this kind of stuff. Um, you know, safe sex from a, a, you know, sex with women perspective. Um, so that was really exciting. Uh, we've also done Dykes on Bikes, where I rode a Harley Davidson into the RVT. We did Katie Lang lip sync competition. That was when Katie Lang treated me and I nearly died. <laughs> Heart failure. Um... We do all sorts of things. So I like sometimes it's educational. Some, you know, we've had um, Marai Larisai, who's been involved in the Times Up campaign, the Me Too campaign. I, I really like that element of the evening because it kind of gets people involved. And then we either have some kind of music or performance art or drag kind of art. And there's DJs and dancing. So people always come up to me and say, "Oh my god, it's so friendly! It's so friendly!" And, and kind of at first I was like, oh, "I don't know, is that, it's friendly, good, it's friendly, cool." But yes. then I was like, actually. How cool is that? And it really cut, it does come from me setting a tone of like, this is a friendly night from the very beginning when I introduced the night. You know, that's the atmosphere I like to create. It doesn't matter what you're wearing. It doesn't matter who you are. Come, meet people, have a good time. You know, let's relax and have fun. And that's very, very important to me. That was Tabs talking to us here at Kicking the Karaoke about being a butch dyke, reclaiming space as a butch woman, and also that sometimes it's really difficult to walk down the street without getting harassed. Speaking of harassment in the street, I found out about an old, old piece of legislation recently, uh, Elena, which feels really Handmaid's Tale-esque. It was called the Contagious Diseases Act, and basically... The police could stop women in the street and operate an internal examination. So they would basically... It was really intrusive. And middle-class ladies got really angry and fed up with this. Um, It was mainly targeted towards sex workers, but they got really unhappy with this. So they started writing letters to their MPs. And they started effectively lobbying government. And they got it overturned. This random law and this random letter writing, it led actually to women realising that they could have a say in things. This was before they got the vote. And it led to them being empowered in order to be able to get the vote. Right. In 2018 marks 100 years since we were given that right to vote. Yay! Yay! Which is all very exciting. We're finally being given an ability to have a say in how our country is run. Really exciting, right? Yeah. But not as progressive as we might think, as it only marks 100 years since some women, only a handful of women, were given the right to vote. Totally. Older women, women that could own property, you know, very small group. So, really the date that we should be celebrating is the 2nd of July, as that marks 90 years since everybody was given the right to vote. All kinds of women were given the right to vote, not just that small handful. So that is really the date that we should be celebrating. Exactly. And to mark the 2nd of July, the National Trust actually launched a new podcast called Women and Power. Women and Power looks at the suffrage movement from a kind of intersectional point of view. So they look at the stories of mill workers, maids and nurses, which is really super important because most of the time when we're talking about the suffrage movement and suffragettes, we're only really talking about middle class ladies and what they've got up to. It even actually covers the women who tried to stop us getting the right to vote. Very, very glad that they didn't succeed. Yeah, I know. I mean, like, why would you not want the right to vote? But, I mean, I guess I'm not a woman from, like, the 1920s, so I wouldn't know. Yeah. Um. Anyway, so, Women in Power. It's presented by Kirsty Walk, Newsnight presenter, and the last episode of this podcast has been released. So, 
if you're interested and we've kind of tickled your fancy a little bit, we would highly recommend you go and binge listen to every single episode out right now. It's absolutely amazing. So you can subscribe to Women in Power on Apple or Google Podcasts or wherever you get your great audio. And you can also visit their website to find out a little bit more, nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash suffrage podcast. So on to our next guest. On to our next guest. We chat to Derek. Over to you, pal. Hi, my name is Derek. I'm a 30-year-old, non-disabled, cisgendered man. Thank you so much, Derek, for joining us this month. We're here to talk about masculinity and the different perspectives and identities uh, all intersecting within that. We asked you to come and talk to us today because you wrote a really interesting article called Black Men Are Made to Feel Ugly. Are you able to give us a bit of like a breakdown of the stereotypes surrounding black masculinity at all? Yeah, sure. But for, <laughs> first thing I want to say is that the headline black men are made to feel ugly. I never say that in the piece. Yeah. And because, like, you know, people are arguing with me and saying, who makes black men feel ugly? Or, you know, because we're obviously not held to us the same Eurocentric standard as black women are. And I wanted to make sure I didn't say that, but I think, obviously, I, you don't have control over what the, the headline is going to be when it goes out onto the internet. I've kind of battled with masculinity for a long time, just something privately. And then I kind of came across a lot of books talking about black masculinity and how men are made to, I guess, the way we're socialised. And we kind of, at some points, we realise we're socialised, but it's almost like we don't care because then we've been socialised not to care anyway. So, you know, it's a cycle that we almost can't get out of. And obviously, when it comes to appearance and looks and things like that, I've often, you know, just thought to myself, okay, how do I look towards two other people? Um, Because I'm very unhappy with the way I look. But I understand that sometimes it's not about that, it's how other people perceive you. So I've always kind of, even if I've been unhappy with how I look, if other people treat me a certain way because of my looks, I've kind of just been satisfied. The way the piece came about is that I was watching Love Island and um, I think it was season two or maybe it was season one and they kind of like, you know, they do the couple up where they just line with the men up. And I was just looking at them, I was just like, wow, like these men are really, really good looking. And it wasn't just that other people saw them as good looking as they clearly did because they wouldn't be on the show. But they were so confident, which means they also knew they were good looking. And there's never been that harmony with me. And seeing that harmony with them, it just made me feel really insecure. And I just thought, I felt silly. I felt really silly. And I thought, should I feel silly? And I just kind of started wondering, I wonder how other men think about this. Because, you know, with your friends and stuff, especially with guys like, with with black men as well, we'll say to each other, oh, you you know, you're ugly. And then they'll say, well, it doesn't matter if I'm ugly. I still get girls sort sort of thing and brush it off. But I thought, okay, what do they really feel about that when they're at home, when they're looking in the mirror in the morning or whatever? What do they actually think about their appearance when they're not putting on a show, the show of masculinity for other people? Um, so I just decided to ask some guys. So I just started um, adding people on Twitter, DMing them, hey, do you want to talk to me about this, this, that, and the other? I really wanted to go for like the really masculine men and see what they thought about themselves. Um, so I got a couple of those and then I spoke to some people who I knew didn't really feel comfortable with your masculinity. Um, and then, yeah, we had like a massive discussion and then I, I, I wrote the piece. And we asking about the stereotypical way that black masculinity is perceived. It's just seen as, to me, it's very, it's very sexual. You know, the stereotype that black men are very well endowed and, and that kind of thing. And so, again, if someone says, oh, you're ugly as a black man, it's almost like they, th- they think, well, I can make up for it in other ways so it doesn't even matter. But that doesn't do it for me at all. That's not really, I don't want to be sexualized in that kind of way. Mm. 
I, I honestly don't believe that other black men do either, but they pretend that it's fine. I really believe there's a lot of there's a lot of a lot of front going on. It's to me masculinity is an act anyway. It's just a massive act. You're talking about how a kind of a stereotype of black masculinity is to be sexualized. Mm. How has this I guess impacted you throughout your journeyhood of being a man? Just to be brutally honest, it's impacted me in a in a good way because I'm not really I'm not a very sexual person. You know, so I'm not always ready to go. And so I've had to kind of think to myself, okay, I don't fit in with that. I don't like that. It's not it's not for me. And then other things, it's not. I've realised that the way masculinity, black masculinity is set up, a lot of it is not for me at all. So I had to kind of try and find other ways to be Derek, to kind of be myself. And that was very difficult. You know, I'm, it's, still, it's a journey I'm still trying to discover how I'm supposed to be, if there is a way I'm supposed to be. Yeah, it's very difficult because you, sometimes you think, am I being true to myself? But then you think, but what is myself? I have no, actually have no idea. That's really interesting, this idea that you've had to almost find other ways to embrace your masculinity. Can you feel masculine? I mean, you said it was mm. a bit of a fast, didn't you? It, it is. I think, yeah, I don't feel masculine right. ever. I've said this to other people and they've said, well, you act masculine. And I, I just never know. I don't really know what that means because what I see as masculine I don't feel like I emulate it in any way. I don't feel like I behave in that. I don't even think I think in, in those kind of ways. You know, some people say, okay, but you act masculine, but this person acts within toxic masculinity. Mm. But to me, those two things are the same. Toxic masculinity and masculinity are the same thing. They do the same thing. Why do you think that is? Because toxic masculinity is just doing what masculinity is supposed to do. So when someone says, oh, you're taking masculinity to an extreme, Masculinity is an extreme in itself, in my personal opinion. It is an extreme thing. So when they say, let's redefine masculinity, let's just throw it away and come up with something completely new. This is just the way I see it. You know, a lot of people will disagree. You know, this whole idea of reclaiming words. Mm. I wonder if you're kind of doing that by just, I guess, just by being yourself. So if, if anything, people can look to you and see that there's different ways to just be yeah. yourself. Yeah, I hope so. You know, I mentor a young boy. He's um, currently going through like an identity crisis as well. And I hope that he looks to me and sees that I'm not behaving a certain way because I'm supposed to. And then that encourages him to just be who he is and be what he is, um, even if he doesn't know it yet. I mean, it's a nice thought that people will look to me and decide to be themselves. But then I don't even know if I'm being myself. What is toxic masculinity? How does it manifest in society? The extremes of masculinity, you'd say, is... A man who is, you know, rejected by a woman, then all of a sudden, he, you know, he feels like he needs to go out on a shooting spree. You know, it's that kind of, they feel entitled to, mm. to everything. They feel entitled to, the, to women's attention, the women's affection, feeling entitled to love full stop. The welling up of pride in a person. When I was about 18, actually, I heard a story of, a, you know, a guy in a chicken shop in Tottenham. Someone spilled some ketchup on his Air Force Ones and he stabbed him. You know, that's what people would call toxic masculinity. But, I mean, before all of this kind of stuff, that was happening before as masculinity. Do you know what I mean? It was masculinity. I feel like people have thrown the toxic on it so that we can actually pretend that masculinity is fine and we don't have to do anything about it. You know, we don't have to throw it away. It's masculinity seen as extreme. Mm. That's what they're calling toxic masculinity. But I just I just think it's just, it's just masculinity. It's doing what it's supposed to do. People join the army. You know, they go out and they kill people. Um, they come out and 
and it's just seen as a normal thing. But no one would say, well, some people do say, but not a lot of people say that someone who's joined the army is indulging in toxic masculinity. It's just like, they're just like, oh, he's just a masculine man. But no, it's, it's, it's masculinity, you know, take the toxic away. That's what it is. But, but it's a crazy thing because you're going out to kill people. So on the converse side, mm. what are your feelings towards like femininity and like feminine traits? To be fair, I haven't actually sat down and thought about it before. There's better people than I who can actually sit down and do that and then come to their own conclusions about it. But because femininity, as I see it, isn't something that, you know, kills people, that really does some serious emotional damage to people, you know, that just wishes to control everything, has this insatiable thirst for power, and when they get power, they don't know what to do with it. And then, you know, the whole world's upside down, which mm -hmm. it is right now because of masculinity, in my opinion. Sorry. The idea of toxic femininity or any kind of femininity where people say it's harmful, I can't really conceptualise it. Yeah. Yeah. You said that the world is upside down because of masculinity. Yeah. Tell me more about that. It's the, the thirst for power and the unwillingness to relinquish it that I think causes the major problems. Power, money, desire for money. You know, I think... The avaricious nature of the West as well, which is obviously run by men. This is what's caused a lot of the problems around the world. A lot of problems, you know, where I'm from in Ghana. The West has completely underdeveloped Africa, one. And that's just because of the way the West is set up. It is capitalism is, in my view, a masculine system because it thrives off power and using other people to achieve certain things, which is, is wrong. It's very... Um, self-serving mm. and I believe that masculinity is a self-serving thing so to bring this back to I guess the article a little bit and Love Island has had a lot of stick for being problematic for women and you've kind of mentioned about it potentially being problematic for men because you know mm. you have arguably unrealistic expectations set on you right is that fair to say yeah I think that's fair I think the problem with Love Island is that yeah it sets a ridiculous standard you know, for attractiveness. They're really trying to normalize a certain way of looking. And Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot of that way of looking, to me, just seems very artificial. It's not real, you know, the majority of people don't look like Megan on Love Island. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah, I think it's quite problematic for men and women. But I would say it's more problematic for women, in my, in my personal opinion, just because they are judged by their appearance as well. And they're, they're made to feel like their appearance is what really matters. So, of course, they're more conscious yeah. of it. I'm interested to talk a little bit then about how people of colour tend to fare in Love Island. You know, mm. you talked about Marcel from the last series in your article, and there's been a lot of discussion around Samira, the only black woman yeah. in Love Island. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, I think society places um, a massive price on the way women see themselves. With Samira, the fact that the men were bypassing her and not choosing her speaks to a wider issue in society. So my article specifically was not trying to talk about a wider issue and say that, you know, black men are made to feel ugly by society. My whole thing was that men do feel insecure sometimes and they should learn to express that rather than bottling it all up and trying to overcompensate in other ways. What I wrote about was specifically about emotional expression, right. men being able to express when, you know, sometimes they feel they feel ugly sometimes or, they, you know, they feel insecure about something. They should be able to say that rather than pretending that it, does, it doesn't happen. With Samira... There was definitely something going on there, you know, in terms of the way the producers were putting the shots together. Apparently they cut out a lot of Samira's relationship. And you just have to think to yourself, why did they do that? Why was Samira not picked throughout this all this time? I mean, because obviously they do a screening before people go into Love Island, you know, and people obviously note down their preferences. But if you've put like 10 people in a house and all of their preferences say blonde hair and blue eyes... If you put a black woman into that situation, what do you think is going to happen? Statistics suggest that people who, let's say, swipe or respond to messages, the rate at which they respond to black women is the least out of all of them. So when you put a black woman in a situation like that, you're just kind of reminding them of how society sees them as like undesirable. Mm. Do you know what I mean? the same thing with like Marcel he was constantly sidelined yeah. right and then like Samira has been constantly sidelined what impact do you think that this is having on like young black British society I think they're just looking at these shows and thinking okay we need to stop applying for these shows <laughs> <laughs> we need to stop going on because they're not these shows are not made for us clearly I mean even with Marcel you, you would think that with his little bit of star status being from Blazing Squad do you know what I mean? Maybe that would have helped his appeal a little bit, but it didn't. He's a striking guy. He's really good looking. But yeah, people just weren't interested. I mean, Samira's absolutely, you know, gorgeous. And she's really funny. She's bubbly, you know. But mm. but still, yeah, it's, it's, it's really weird. What's great, though, is that I saw a lot of, like, articles and think pieces, you know, talking about the way these shows tend to, the light that they shine on black women and their relationship to wider society and how, you know, the black... British community and also you know just the British community see black women because I think it's important for us to also say that it's not just the way 
you know, white men see black women, because obviously that's what we're seeing. That is white men who are like, I guess, not finding Samira attractive, as they say. But it's also black men who are kind of saying, well, so what? Mm. Which is a massive issue as well. Like, for example, in Love Island, when there was a, a mixed race gentleman who went in, really good looking guy. And at the beginning, he said he was interested in this, uh, in one girl and he was interested in Samira. So I remember I was talking to my friend at the time and I said, look, hey, look, there's, you know, there's a mixed race guy going in and he said he likes Samira. She said, he's lying. She said, it's a red herring. He said, he's obviously watched the show beforehand, come in, said he's interested in Samira as a way for him to stay. So do you know what I mean? Mm. She was. She basically said, I haven't watched the show enough to know that these are tactics that, you know, some of the contestants use. They pretend to like someone when really they like somebody else. As a cis white woman, I don't know how much masculinity impacts on me, but I wonder if you could give me a 101 about how is masculinity felt by, by different communities. So masculinity teaches men that they need to be strong. They need to be providers, protectors. They need to be able to do all of these kind of things to be men. They need to be powerful, have power. Now, if you put a black African man in that situation where I feel like those kind of masculinities are turned up to 100, they start to act in a really strange way. They start to lash out. If they can't fulfill what masculinity said they must fulfill, it's almost like they just, they go a bit crazy. And if they can't have power in wider society as like, they can't have the same kind of power as a white man would have, they want to have power in their house. And then they start to rule with like an iron fist and they start to, you know, treat people badly just so that they can feel good. I personally think that people who beat their children, you know, and things like that, that's just power gone crazy. I think as well, like the kind of, you know, the hypersexualization of black men, they kind of just, they let it happen. They allow it. They think it's fine. They think, okay, well, you know, that's fine. I, I, I have power in that way now. So because women are going to want to sleep with me because of this. They don't, it's like they just don't care about the fact that they're being completely objectified. It's almost a bit like a dehumanisation. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. We, and it's strange because all through history, that's what's been happening to black people. We're being dehumanised. You know, the fact that we've been enslaved, the, the way they justify our enslavement is by saying that we're subhuman. So again, if you've got somebody dehumanising you in the 21st century... That should just bring your mind back to what's been going on and you should realise that there's something really, really wrong here. We've talked before on this podcast about the legacy of slavery and the legacy of events like that in the 21st century. Do you see evidence of that kind of hangover still today? I think so, yeah. It's really complicated. I think the biggest hangover that I see is things like colorism, The fact that the lighter you are, the closer you are to whiteness, the more society sees you as something special do you know what i mean or black people who are allowed into white spaces then all of a sudden think that they are better than mm -hmm. other black people and i think the whole kind of you know have a seat at the table so i use the example of field um, slaves and house slaves when the slave was allowed into the house they start stereotypically they start to be a bit more uppity and whatnot so people are always saying oh they want a seat at the table or that kind of thing they want to be able to sit down with the people who are in power. But I mean, realistically, what we need to do is just flip the whole table over, the table <laughs> over, do you know what I mean? Rather totally. than wanting to sit down with them, it's weird. I mean, I hesitate to point out specific hang-ups from, you know, colonialism and, you know, the enslavement of African people because I, I don't feel confident enough to say, yes, this is what it is. You mentioned right at the start that the books quite helped you think about masculinity. Can you tell us some of the books that you read? What would you recommend the listenership read? My journey into like discovering, 
a feminism was really so i used to be on twitter a lot i didn't had, I had no idea what feminism was and i used to argue with my friend helen and she used to always be talking about you know uh, feminism and i used to be like what are you talking about you know you feminists are crazy blah blah, blah all this kind of rubbish and she said look just read a couple of books and i kept resisting then she said read my angelou's i know why the cage bird sings and i thought fine okay so i read that and it just kind of gave me insight i'd never experienced before and i was like okay I didn't tell her she was right. I just stopped arguing with her. And then I read a book called Teaching Men to Be Feminist by Anne Dickinson, which was quite interesting. It was quite insightful. Then I read Cat Banyard's The Equality Illusion, which kind of made me just think, wow, I had no idea this kind of stuff was going on. You know, because back then when I think about feminism, I would think, okay, you know, pay inequality and whatnot, which are important. But there was a lot of other things going on that I had no idea about. And then I read The Will to Change by Bell Hooks and you know, just kind of turned my world upside down. Yeah. Because it made me realise that feminism, you know, is something that can help men as well. And we are actually being crippled by the same system that's making mm-hmm. us do all of these mad things. You know what I mean? And I was just like, wow, okay. This is really, really interesting. Bell Hooks, like, she's leading the way when it comes to deconstructed masculinity. The world to change, we real cool. I haven't read a book by a man on masculinity that I feel like has really done much for me there was one i think it's called it's called iron john but i just felt like there's this chip on men's shoulders when they're writing about their own masculinity it's it's really strange it's, it's difficult for me to read sometimes so i just yeah i just stick to reading about women who are talking about masculinity. yeah so are you a feminist it depends who i'm talking to because i can be talking to my boys and i'll be like yes you know i'm a feminist and blah blah, blah. and they'll be just because it, it may intrigue them and think oh let me kind of see what this is about but I w- when I'm talking to a woman, I don't say, yes, I'm a feminist, because they can just say, no, you're not. And I would have to shut my mouth. <laughs> so, you know what I mean? If they want to call me that, that's fine. It doesn't change my political outlook, whether they call me a feminist or not. But obviously, if I call myself a feminist to men, that could change their political outlook. How can we be better allies to black men with issues like this? I think it would be about talking to black women, listening to what they have to say, reading about what they have to say about black men and then taking it from there. Because right now I don't believe, especially in the UK, that black men know much about what's going on with their own masculinity or know how we can be helped. But obviously black women, because the oppressed need to know their oppressor in and out. So women know a lot more about men than men know about themselves because they have to in order to be able to survive them. Do you know what I mean? Just like, you know, black people know a lot more about Europeans than they know about themselves. Because we have to, otherwise, you know, we're going to die. So I think that would be the way to go, yeah. So read books like Slay in Your Lane, which is an amazing book, The Black Girl Bible, incredible. That'll give you a really good insight into um, black British women. Then Rene Edel Lodges, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race is really, really good. And yeah, that's what I would say, yeah. Start with black women, I guess. That quote about the oppressed have to know more about their oppressor in order to survive. Mm. You just did a little explosion in my head. <laughs> I feel like I could see the world in a totally different light I know. now. Yeah, I was thinking, I mean, I feel like I've had lots of mini explosions. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but like that in particular. And also like in your article, you said men are not supposed to care about their appearance in the same way women do. So how can I cry about feeling ugly? Mm. And I was like, whoa. Yeah, it's sad. It's kind of like, because... Look, women affected by masculinity and the effects of masculinity in in a worse way than men are. But men are still, we're still crippled by it. Do you know what I mean? I think we need to look 
deep within ourselves and kind of identify the issues that we're facing and, and try and find ways out of it. It's not women's responsibility to do that. You know, they're trying to navigate their own lives and their own personhood and, and all that kind of thing. But yeah, yeah, we need to fix up. Everybody makes mistakes, everybody does things, but I think it's just about identifying the things that you've done or the things that you've thought, you know, the things that you've said and then realising that, okay, this is not the way forward. I can't do this again, mm. you know. Or if someone tells you you've done something, try your best to change it. Do you know what I mean? Is there anything that you're working on that we can platform, that we can find you on? Oh, yeah, there's the Mostly Lit podcast, you know, yeah. <laughs> where we talk about books, pop culture, films. I'm editing a book that's coming out. It's called Safe, and it's a, basically a book of essays by black British men talking about things that black British men don't usually talk about. Wow. So, you know, we, we cover uh, homophobia in the black community, you know, again, masculinity, where we fit in in churches, black men in foster care, you know, and how a lot of the time black men are sexualized in foster care as well. You know, how black men handle abuse, physical, emotional and sexual abuse, how we keep quiet about it a lot of the time and how it's quite rife in the black community. So yeah, just things that we don't we don't talk about, a lot of authors are going to be writing about. And that comes out in March. Thank you so much, Derek, for giving up his time to come and chat to us, especially for talking to us about black masculinity. And what we really liked about the interview with him was how much he centred black women, black feminism, and how important it was to listen to black women first and foremost. Mm, good point. Up next, we're talking to Rich, who's a mental health campaigner. Take it away, Rich. Hi, I'm Rich. I'm 26. I'm a white, cisgender, queer, non-disabled person. Yay! Yay! Rich, thank you so much for joining us. We're chatting about masculinity. What does masculinity mean to you? That definition has changed so much over the course of five years for me because when I was really open about my struggles with mental health, masculinity was a central part of what I defined as whether I was ill or not in terms of society. Because often, you know, widely said now, we look at masculinity as this sort of strong, archetypal, machoistic, you can't be vulnerable, you can't show weakness. I think that to be masculine is to completely identify with yourself however you are. I'm not, you know, this super combative, aggressive, strong, typical man. I'm emotional, I'm really sensitive. I've cried like five times this week over nothing. I wouldn't say I'm like a stereotypical bloke. But then stereotypical bloke is changing. And I think that can only be good for young men because when I was 15 and really struggling at school, I didn't have anyone to look up to. I wasn't like the other kids. I wasn't super sporty. I didn't always want to be going out and trying to pull girls. And I wanted to go in and read or play video games or write stories. And for representation for those young men is essential because I massively struggled. I, I just didn't know where to turn or, or who to look to. And that stayed with me for years. I think it's really interesting that you mentioned the idea of a stereotypical man is changing. And I think you're right. We're at this interesting like cusp, particularly now, you know, 21st century, 2018, kind of seeing a shift in masculinity and almost, I guess, the male psyche mm -hmm. as such. And we're almost potentially seeing, I don't want to call it a crisis, but, you know, a lot of men are starting to feel that as they are encouraged to feel more emotional, they're not actually equipped to deal with these emotions because traditionally they haven't been allowed to. Can you tell us, talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I agree. I think we're at a point where the floodgates are ready to go because for so long, by other men, it's been reinforced that you can't be weak and you can't cry. You know, one example, so I've been very open about my mental health and my mental illness. My 
dad and myself, we're both Millwall fans. So a Millwall football fan is the is the stereotype of a man goes and drinks loads of pints and has pies and only talks about football and women and whatever. And I have been vocal and open within that community and so many men that you would never associate with being in touch with their emotions just by stereotyping them, and, and I'm guilty of it myself, have said, oh, actually, yeah, I've been through that or my son or my daughter's experienced this. And and I think if you just sort of peel the surface, so many guys are are desperate to just be able to be open and talk about what's really going on, because why wouldn't they? You know, it's not that they don't have these feelings. Can you tell us a bit about the impact of the phrase man up? Yeah, so for me, I just think I don't understand what you mean, because we're all humans. I almost just don't want to give people time of day when they say man up because because clearly for them they haven't educated themselves. They aren't aware that that just is nonsense because I really don't put any value on it. It's like saying human up. It means nothing to me. What about when, when you were a kid and you didn't know this much about yourself? Yeah, so when I was a kid and someone was like, oh, man up, I think that plays into the stereotype that you're taught when you're a child. And it it is that kind of thing of, oh, OK, stiff upper lip. And, and I think it is kind of a British thing as well. As a, a young, white, working-class kid in south-east London, it was stiff upper lip, get on with it, Your grandparents live through the blitz, mend and make do kind of thing. And I can understand that point of view because that's their life experience. But then I don't think it necessarily did me any favours when I was a kid, because I was a sensitive, emotional kid. Did you ever feel, I guess, a sense of jarringness with how maybe you wanted to be emotional, you wanted to be in touch with your emotional side, but because you were a boy, you were socialised as a boy growing up, you weren't allowed or you weren't supposed to do that? I think I'm very, very fortunate with both my parents. So I I was brought up by my dad from the age of seven. Uh, My mum and dad split up and I live with my dad. And I was so lucky because he has always, always, always reinforced the fact that I can be emotional and I can be sensitive. I I can be however I want and need to be. But then outside of that, society doesn't always cater to the same thoughts and beliefs. Like even now, you know, I'm 26 and I've got really good friendship groups that are diverse and, you know, varied. And in some of them, I still feel like I can't be emotional. I still feel like I can't admit that I'm really sad or admit that I'm struggling. And then is it any wonder why we see such, I guess, harrowing suicide statistics for men under the age of 45? When I first heard that statistic, I mean, it is shocking. Like, when you hear that, when you when you hear that taking your own life is the biggest killer of men in this country under the age of 45, when you hear that statistic, you just can't help but stop in your tracks and think, how in a country that professes to be a world leader in all aspects we've got this huge problem that no one wants to talk about because everyone's like well a we can't talk about death even though we're all going to die and b we can't talk about suicide because it's taboo and yet it's the biggest killer of men under the age of 45 although we're creating a society now that deals with male emotion and masculinity differently i don't think we're too late but i think we're too late to do anything about it immediately and i think it's not something that can be changed by laws or regulations or committee meetings i think it just has to be a societal shift in the way we look at masculinity can you tell us a little bit about your mental health journey I always start in the middle, go back to the beginning and then come to the end because in my head that's just the way it makes sense for me. 
So I was diagnosed when I was 15 with OCD and depression. It started showing itself, well, the OCD anyway, was, was uh, I was always very punctual and studious, like typical teacher's pet. And then I stopped doing homework. I started bunking off school. I was late to class. And when you go from being a teacher's pet to behaving like that, it's noticed and flagged immediately so I got brought into the head of year and they said what's going on like there's obviously something my dad got brought in and I was just so scared of authority and getting in trouble and getting a detention so I just explained everything I was like well I can't touch the doors and I can't walk through the corridors and it takes me like 20 minutes to get to class because I have to wait for someone to walk through a door to like quickly go behind them and I can't take my homework home because then school will be at home and I can't always come into school because sometimes I'm terrified to be in school and so they went, I think you need to go to the GP, went to the GP, um, explained all of this, then explained that for the past year I'd been climbing in and out of my bedroom on a leather chair that I'd asked my dad to get as a gaming chair, but I just needed something to climb in and out of my room because I couldn't touch my carpet. So I was terrified of falling out of bed every night, and terrified of just going to bed and being in my room. And all of these things that I'd hidden for about a year and it was all going on, you know, around my dad and no one picked it up because you just hide stuff and the doctor went I think you've got OCD and I was like oh, okay what's that and and it was like a long process of learning what that was and I was very lucky that my doctor was fantastic and I got some talking therapy quite quickly and I kind of recovered very quickly with talking therapy and something that I found throughout the years is when I'm open about something and I actually talk about it and get it off my chest it doesn't go away but I think sometimes for me the fear of talking about it stops me from dealing with it so anyway I was okay for it for a number of years and then I was at a sixth form I was the head boy. I was one of the only kids that could drive. We used to go to the cafe and have like a builder's breakfast every day I, like I felt like a little king I was like oh yeah I'm popular I had my uni place lined up, everything was perfect. And then about two months before my last A-levels, I got chickenpox and I got taken into hospital and I got bandaged up like a mummy because it was all over my body and it was infected. And the doctor was like, in 30 years, I've never seen a case this bad. And for someone that has got OCD that showered every day to then have to be sort of sofa bound for a week wrapped in bandages not being able to wash their hands or anything set me back massively because I was like right well I've obviously caught this from school because that's the only place I go where there's a lot of people so I can't go back to sixth form so two months before my A-levels I stopped going to sixth form and it was only through persistence of my family and my ex-partner and my school that I got back in they arranged for me to come in and do sort of like evening classes with them and the tutors were fantastic and I managed to pass I got ABC deferred my uni place because I thought right I just need a break and that was possibly the worst thing I could have done because after a couple of months I developed this idea in my head that I'd be contaminated by the outside world by people coughing by car pollution people sneezing out in the street and not covering their mouths so I was like well I'm just gonna not go outside for a few months and it ended up being about three months that I was housebound and then through again persistence and support from family and my ex-partner and her family as well I was able to challenge that and start going out into the garden a bit and, and, and then it sort of built up and exposure therapy and all that kind of stuff. And then a couple of months later, I can't recall the moment or the thing that caused it, but I was bedbound and I remember not being able to touch anything or do anything or, you know, feed myself or go downstairs. I just couldn't do it. It'll make sense when I talk about it later, but I used to see things on the telly that reminded me of things in, in my childhood or hear things that were said. 
and I would go, right, well, I can't go out for 24 hours because in that 24-hour period, that'll be where I can have, like, a clean mind and, and be clean in my body and nothing will touch me or, or make me feel mentally contaminated. And then, naturally, when you focus on things like that, you pick up every single tiny thing. And the days went by, I had to have the bed changed every day. My dad had to come and look after me, basically. He had to get me new food every day, new toothbrush, new shower gel, new towel, new clothes. And it was really tough. It was nine months. And, and it got to a point where, you know, dad was, like, holding down a job, looking after his stepdad that was dying of cancer, looking after his mum that was looking after, you know, and looking after me. I think I dropped to about eight stone from being 12 stone. Like, I was really ill. Dad said it was like looking at someone who's going for a chemo. And he just looked at me one day and broke down in tears and said, I can't do this anymore. I'm watching my son die. Shall we just end it together? And it was like a massive slap in the face because I was like, I don't know what to do with this. What I'm going to, like, kill him because I can't deal with what's going on in my head. And the only way I can describe it visually is that like you know in films when the power generator goes so they have to go and switch on the backup generator like in Jurassic Park when Laura Dern has to go and like power up the facility one by one and that moment of my love for my dad and my fear that he wouldn't be there because of me was like I need to do something about this like I'm I'm gonna die and he's gonna die so we arranged for me to move completely to a different part of the country I moved up to Blackpool as I've done all my life I thought running away from my problems would be brilliant and it would just solve everything and it did for about a year but I remember we got to the Premier Inn at Blackpool Airport and my aunt had to bring clothes for me to change into after I showered at the airport because I couldn't wear clothes that had been where I was living because I just was this association of where I was living I couldn't take anything into this sort of new life and I remember wearing all new clothes you know new trainers and everything and I couldn't even hug my dad to say goodbye and I really thought I'd never see him again and I was 20 you know I'd lived with him since I was seven he was everything I'd known and I really thought I'd never see him again and I'd said goodbye to my nan as well before I left and I remember walking over the bridge at Blackpool Airport crying my eyes out and he was crying, standing at the reception door at the Premier Inn. And, and I remember walking to my aunt's house and at the corner of their road, I, I took my shoes off because I thought, well, they've been in the hotel where I've been. And it literally, I had nothing. I had no phone, like literally just the clothes I was wearing. And I walked in, took all my clothes off, put them in a bag. My aunt put them in the bin. I showered and I was like, oh, my God, this is it. Like, this is my new life with no attachment to anything from my past. And then through the massive help of Max, the golden retriever, I kind of developed this bond with him where I was able to, like, touch him and not immediately want to wash my hands because he just wanted to be touched again. And I was like, well, I want to touch him again because he's a cute dog. So I just sort of bonded with him and I was at home all the time on my own because I wasn't doing anything and... My aunt and cousin were at work and my uncle was in and out. So this dog just became like this sort of lifeline for me. And eventually I sort of started going out again and my aunt said, well, you either get a job or you go to college. And I was like, mm, I'll go to college. Well, I, I really like music. I can play guitar. I used to be in a band, so I'll do that. So I went and sort of we had to audition to get on the course and I got on and it was great. And, I, you know, I went out partying and... Blackpool is a fantastic place if you've got low standards, low morals and you just want to have fun and you need to just enjoy yourself. But very quickly, the sort of freedom and the ability to just suddenly do everything again hit home and I was like, this isn't actually helping. Again, I just slowly spiralled 
back down into eventually being housebound when I got a flat of my own. Again, like I don't know how my dad has coped all of the years that have gone on because he used to drive up from where I live in South East London to Blackpool to drop off shopping so that I could eat and he'd drive home. So it was like a 10-hour round trip. And then in yeah March of... 2016 I got a call at eight o'clock saying my nan had gone into hospital so I rang my mum and said what should I do and she said go get there be with her so I drove down got lost in Camden at three o'clock in the morning because my satin had died and I couldn't figure out how to get back to where I needed to be and and then the next day my nan passed away in hospital and I got to be with her see her and you know she couldn't really speak but she always used to say about my OCD she used to be like oh fuck it like that was her thing um and I remember that was one of the last things she said. She said she loved me and she went, always remember. She went, fuck it. She said, just get on with it. And then I just stayed at home. I couldn't go back. I'd, I couldn't leave dad. And, and thankfully, since then, it's just been sort of like an upward spike of acceptance and talking about it more. And yeah, it's just been really one of those weird things because in 18 months from when my nan passed away, I lost two uncles, an aunt and my best friend of 21 years. So he was diagnosed with cancer in March and passed away in November. And We've been best mates since we were four. We went to primary school together, secondary school together, sixth form together. And depression was just overwhelming because I just thought, how do I deal with all of this loss and this grief? And even in like the last couple of days, I've been speaking to people where they said it isn't just grief or sadness for you. It's almost like trauma because it's five really close, important relationships that have just been taken away from you in 18 months and it's really hard to deal with and it's just something that I'm starting to look at now. It's something I've never even considered and I wouldn't say it's sort of PTSD as such but there's definitely some form of trauma there that I need to deal with and address and yeah, in the most long-winded way possible, <laughs> that's that's kind of how it how it went. Thank you so much for sharing that with us and for like trusting us enough with that. That was I think a really like hard listen but like a really important one. So it's interesting we're chatting about masculinity I'm interested to know how you think or whether you think masculinity has at all played a role in your mental health journey but also how how your dad has been such a positive figure in this and how sometimes dads of that generation can struggle with that. So I'll address the one I can answer first with my dad. I think he was very fortunate that, you know, he was born the year that rationing ended. Sorry, Dad, that's your age there. <laughs> um, he used to play in bombed-out houses from the Blitz. You know, that was his childhood, so completely worlds away from anything that I can ever imagine and that we could ever contemplate was a childhood. But he was brought up with really strong, sensitive female role models. So he was brought up by his mum and his nan, and he had five uncles around him that were all, in their own way, different but brilliant at helping him realise who he is. And, and he isn't the most sort of blokey bloke. He's sensitive. He cries at sad films and Marley and me and all that kind of stuff. And I'm really lucky that I had him because we helped each other. So, yes, he is from that generation that probably aren't so accepting of certain things, but he was brought up in a way that he was brilliant for me. I couldn't have wished for a better emotional sounding board when I was growing up. But in terms of masculinity for me, I didn't ever struggle to identify as a man. I've always identified with the gender I was born with. 
but I struggled to identify with what it meant to be a man. And by that, I mean, why didn't I like sports as much as how boys are meant to like sports? Mm. And why didn't I want to go and talk to girls all the time? And I grew up in sort of, you know, working class area. I went to an all boys secondary school. It became a sports college halfway through my time. So I was surrounded by huge levels of testosterone and male figures that promoted this idea of, well, we're a, a tough boys school and and that's what you have to be and and if you weren't sporty they kind of didn't really care it was like well you're not sporty so go and do drama and we'll leave you to it and I was fine with that but I think it didn't help me because I just thought oh okay well if you're not sporty then or typical lad no one really bothers because I can't identify with a lot of things that guys are associated with what category am I putting what happens that is changing now but we still have this whole boys v girls debate all the time for me personally I think you know we have to get to a point where young boys see themselves as completely equal emotionally as everyone else and I think there is this big disconnect with what it means to be a man and what it means to be an emotional man. And I just don't understand why, because it's the same thing. Emotions don't discriminate, they're just there. How can we be better allies to you, to men with mental health issues or struggling with mental health? How can we be better allies? For me personally, I think the biggest thing for me is just the ability to speak without judgment or fear of ridicule or being put into this category of, oh, well we won't speak to him because he always just gets emotional or he always is just sad. And I think the biggest thing is just providing this, for lack of a better phrase, like a safe space, because it is a vulnerable thing for guys if they haven't been emotional or they haven't wanted to open up or if they have had families or relationships that aren't receptive to talking about mental health, to be able to say, actually, I just need someone to listen to me for a bit talking really does completely change lives it really does make a big difference to people thank you so much rich for coming on and chatting to us you're most welcome for being so open and honest mm. and for kind of almost like bearing your soul a little bit yeah. yeah thank you yeah no you're most welcome a real privilege um what are you working on what what this platform is yours to plug anything that you're working on and people can find you so a couple of friends and i have got some podcasts planning and in the works um one of them is going to be about video games and the impact they're having for good and bad. And the other podcast is going to be a sarcastic, hilarious take on mental health. And it's obviously serious, but life isn't always serious. And there are moments of hilarity to be found in the darkest of depths of mental health. And when you can talk about that with someone that's been through it, it's brilliant. Another thing that I'm working on, the big thing that I need to just kick my ass into gear with, I'm writing a book. I hate you know, young people that write memoirs, so it's not going to be a 26-year-old person's memoir and their life story or autobiography at all. But it's going to tackle masculinity and, and the impact that had on me and sexuality through childhood to now and mental illness and the journey of the last 15 years for me because it's so important, like we've discussed, for young people to see role models that have gone through experiences that they might be going, I'm going through this right now. And to see that there is hope and to see that you can lead a life of happiness. So that's the big thing I'm working on. I just need to face the blank screen and start typing. It's always the hardest part. Always the yeah. hardest part. Thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. You're most welcome. It's yeah. been a privilege. And lastly, our final guest of season two. That was Rich. And that was the final episode of Kicking the Kyriarchy series two.
Thank you so much to you guys at home for listening. You have no idea how much it means to us that you download these little podcast links and stick them in your ears. Oh, that's so cute. This series, we did some big-ass topics. We did race, class, age, language, disability, slavery, feminism, incarceration, living with HIV, voluntourism, and now masculinity. Honestly, we never thought that we'd be able to cover topics as big as these. And to all the haters that said we'd run out of things to cover... Up yours, because thankfully the world is so fucked up, we've got bags, bags of, of content. content. Hashtag content for days. But on a serious note, thank you. Thank you to every single one of our guests this season. That means Ming, Sienna, Kim, Mina, Hajira and Rich, Hannah Marlena, Chrissy, Nula, JJ, Jamila and Gary, Francis, Kaz, Michelle, Kahindi, Maravik and Afwa, Meryl, Samita, Paula, Yasmin, Marilyn and Paula, Michael, Hosanna and Shima, Samira, Pippa and Rafia, and finally Rich, Derek and Tabs. Thank you so much for trusting us with your stories, letting us share them and for educating us all. This really has nothing to do with Elena and I. What makes this podcast so great is your stories. Thanks again to assistant producers Amelia Parker, Becky Malone and Emma Hallahan. We are not done yet. We'll be back later in the year with an even better series three and loads of really cool things so in the meantime listen to the other episodes take advice from our guests read the resources that they recommend and chat to us let us know what you want to see hear and do rate and review us on itunes and come say hello to us on twitter you can find us at kick Kariaki. you can send us your cool ideas at kicking the at gmail.com and check out our illustrations at kicking the it's been an absolute pleasure so with love and solidarity Elena in Sydney. Yeah. Peters! <laughs> Had to stick one in there somewhere. <laughs> They're always getting in the way. Yeah. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.